think you just like Jessica. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, she's really cool. She is cool. And she's offered to help me get into Dungeons and Dragons. So Hey man. Naturally. It's a disease. She's gotta spread it. It's not why do you gotta call it a disease? Because it's Dungeons and Dragons. Like what else is it gonna be? Um fun. Fun I for mean, the whole family. Rugby, I imagine, is fun for a lot of people, right? Oh yeah. Something that people enjoy. Of course. You know. But it's like a disease. Rugby is. Is rugby like a so is everything like a disease if it if people enjoy it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because you get addicted to it and it's a physiological psychological addiction which uh well i don't have i don't have an addiction to it so i don't think it's a disease but well uh, but an addiction is a disease all right can't argue with that so i mean that's i mean that's what they say they're like oh you don't <coughs> you don't understand he's addicted to meth it's a disease like well yeah and because it, it, it's a it's a disease of the brain i feel like it's more alcohol i hear that a lot with alcohol is that alcoholism is a disease i hear well i mean maybe it is is it a disease or is it a dysfunction What's the difference? Well, I feel like a disease is more of like a, uh, a, 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 I don't know, not a physical dependence, but a physical debilitation. But, okay, so, like, where do you draw the line between debilitation and, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, you have to decide to go buy more alcohol. People don't decide but, but to if have you, But if you have, a, have, if you have a psychological addiction, you, if you have a, a, a physiological addiction, you have no choice. Like you have to have it. Perhaps kind of related to my caffeine addiction. I wouldn't call that a disease, though. I, I could actively it, try to thwart my uh, my my caffeine addiction, but I can't thwart my um, other disease issues that I got. My IBD. But if you stop drinking coffee, will you go into withdrawals? Yeah, I do. So and that's a that's a physiological addiction. Okay, but I can choose to have the withdrawals and then to not be addicted but a disease isn't something you can just choose to have gone you know no you have to make a legitimate effort to i guess to see to i feel cure, like, to cure yourself of the addiction see that's the distinction i think is that if you have an effort if there is an effort to be made to cure yourself then there i don't i don't know if you'd qualify that as a disease I, but, it just but sounds how very, do you how do you define a disease though like that's, that's the thing. Like, well, let's just look it, it up. Let's look up disease definition. All right. You know, let's, let's see what it is. And it says a disorder of structure or function in a human animal or plant, especially one that produces a specific signs or symptoms or that affects a specific location. And it's not simply a direct result of physical injury. So you can argue that addiction is a disease. It's a disease of the brain. A, dis- a direct result of physical injury. It I is, feel it like is, it is not. Be. It is. It is not a direct. It is not simply a direct result of physical injury. Okay, so if I decided to drink a toxin and injure myself, well, you're just and- an idiot. <laughs> that's that. Hold on. So so how can well, we? Well, that's what that? alcohol is. I yeah, know, that's what oh, I'm saying. Man. Is that right. you are? Yeah, but like uh, you know something like. But um, does alcohol really cause a physical injury? So now we've got to define injury. There, Yeah, there you go. Like, what do you define as injury? I mean, you can certainly injure yourself on alcohol, which I feel like where most people done are, are going to want to yeah, go. But I've it's not it, yeah. like you are impairing your ability to... I mean, I, yeah, you could have an injury of the brain, I guess. 
Yeah. It's not like an impact that has caused this injury, but rather toxins. Or you could have injury resulting from toxins. Like if I drink bleach, that will injure me. So if alcoholism is a disease, like they call it, they say alcoholism is a disease, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like what do they call? What do they, I mean, if someone's addicted to meth, they call it a disease as well. Or See, is this is the this is what I'm saying. Yeah, like, that's, I don't that's, wanna, this, like, this, yeah, this, this getting, yeah, this is getting back to your original question. Yeah, like, I don't. What do, you, what do you define it as? Do we only call alcoholism a disease because it is so widely and socially acceptable to drink alcohol, whereas methamphetamines and cocaine addiction is not socially acceptable? So therefore, we do not call it a disease. This is these are interesting points. Look, we need a someone in, in terms of philosophy to kind of clarify this stuff, or even, I don't know, even like philosophical medicine. Is it? I think that's kind of where it falls under. I don't think there are, is it are philosophical any philosophical medicine? medicine specialists, though. Is it philosophical medicine, or is it just is it philosophical medicine? Is it philosophy, or is it medicine? Which it's, one of the three? I feel is like it? it's both. It's how it's how we define things or how we consider things. It's just not like it's. There is a whole bunch of gray area in there. Apparently, I think like you know, if I decide to drink alcohol and get drunk, am I injuring myself? I don't know. I don't. I don't know how to answer that because I drink alcohol, and I don't see anything wrong with it as long as you can control yourself. Like if you drink in moderation, like I have, I have not gotten drunk in a very very long time. Mm-hmm. Like I've been under the influence, but like, you know, my definition of drunk, I have not been drunk in a very, very long time. And, uh, I, I think I may be the wrong person to ask cause I have a different perspective. So, on it. so maybe we could define injury if you're drinking alcohol to the point where you'd be making bad decisions yeah, where it's decisions actually that would, you know, negatively impact your life. Yeah. And then being incapable to incapable of doing that, of making the correct decision that you're where your you know, thing is impaired by alcohol. And I think it's just like the parallel that I'm trying that, that could be drawn is that if you're impairing yourself, you could also consider that as injuring yourself or to the point where it is possibly causing physiological damage to yourself. Yeah. Like and that's cause, like, yeah, you know, obviously, yeah, that, that is definitely, and you're damaging yourself. You're definitely, uh, what is it? Um, I'm not impairing your, um, uh, you're injuring your liver, say, if you drink too much, or the yeah. heart disease that that comes along with with drinking too much. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good point. So, is it a disease? Is it? Uh, <laughs> is it a disease? I mean, think about all the things that humans have called diseases, like in the past. You know, through the you know last two thousand years, like written history. You know what they referred to as diseases. You know. At one point in time, like, you know, I think homosexuality was considered a disease. Mm. So maybe it's just like a hot button term that yeah. people use to yeah. just like, you know, like I when get I think people riled up in the media. Yeah. When I think of disease, I think of, you know, germ theory and, uh, you know, afflictions being caused by microorganisms or like genetics. I think yeah, or, even like yeah, genetic, or genetic disease. Yeah. But, but is that as a genetic, is that a genetic uh, malformation or is that a genetic dysfunction versus a genetic disease like is he wait hold on okay so i don't understand the distinction you're is hemophilia do you consider okay so for example do you consider hemophilia a disease hmm does it affect your ability to conduct or to to, to live your life i think is kind of hemophilia like the wait so what is hemophilia that's, that's where, like it's where your blood, blood doesn't clot yeah okay so yeah that would definitely impact your ability 
to stay alive. So is that a disease? Yeah. But see, to me, it's a genetic uh, abnormality. It's a dysfunction because your blood does not clot the way that it should. So it's it's a dysfunction caused by a genetic abnormality. Yes, but you didn't make decisions that led to you having hemophilia. Hemophilia, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that I feel like that could be you know classified as a genetic. I don't I don't know the, the exact you know definition of, of diseases as much I, as well, somebody that's a, that's that the whole has point a of what doctorate we're or at. a medical yeah. degree. Well, I don't. Yeah, that's the whole what I'm getting at. Like, I think if we asked a bunch of doctors, like, is hemophilia a disease or a disorder or a dysfunction? I think we may get some mixed results. I I you know I I think it's a disorder. Mm-hmm. Or or a genetic a, a genetic abnormality that results in some sort of dysfunction, which is under a broad term called a disorder. Okay. In other words, like if it's a disorder, you have no <clears throat> you have no say so in it. Like mm-hmm. it's it's genetic, and there's nothing you can do. Like guess what? You've got it, and suck it up. Yeah. So, I think that's disorder. I think disease is. Something that you inherit, like you receive it from some kind of outside source, whether that be a toxin or whether that be a germ, a virus, a bacteria. I think that's what's classified as so, a disease. I've heard those were infections. If it has to do with, um, you know, virus or bacteria, you are infected, not you, diseased. You, you, well, here's the thing. You, we're constantly infected. All infected means is that the pathogen has made its way inside of our body. We are infected. Mm-hmm. The disease is the result of the infection. Okay. So that, and this is one thing that I've like, somebody's corrected me on is that there were no longer calling them STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, but rather sexually transmitted infections because they are related to. Well, the infection is a result of a sexual act. Okay. So the, the STI Quote, unquote. leads to an STD is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it's it's still it's just it's just a way to like it's I hate I don't want to say this but I'm a, I'm gonna say it I don't care it's a way to church it up okay mm-hmm. like there you go in my redneck sensibility psychology <laughs> it's a way to church it up we don't want to call it sexually transmitted disease that just sounds terrible no it's a sexually transmitted infection and well, see I feel like the that's di- stupid because the disease infection sounds like it's it could be cured like yeah. this it, this is temporary well yeah know? well but. It's because an infection is preventable. The infection oh. is what's preventable. So you can take preventative measures to pre- to keep yourself from being infected. Okay, the disease, same thing yeah. for the sexually transmitted disease. Well, well, here's the thing: the disease is not preventable because the disease is contingent on being infected. So if you have the disease, you've already been infected. So, like, okay. if you're sh- basically you're showing signs of the disease. So therefore, you've already got it. Okay. It's a result of the infection. But you can say they want to say infection because it's a you can you can prevent it. Okay. Makes sense. I feel like that also still just kind of indicates that it's you can you can cure it when some sexually transmitted whatever you want to call them are 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 with you forever. That's not that like there's no cure. It's not it's not an infection so much as it is a a disease that it's you know you have a constant yeah. 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 You you're constantly you're there's no end to the infection. Mm -hmm. And that's like like herpes. There's you once you have that's it. You you will always have those antibodies in your system. So like a lot of times today, you know well well regardless like so 
the immune response that happens because of herpes is is not a that's not the disease that's your body that's your body responding to an infection like mm-hmm. there's really if you think about it if you have herpes like if, like and it's cold sores you know cold sores fever blisters and then you know the dreaded you know herpes simplex virus simplex 2 um what you see is 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 an immune response like when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, like if you have a herpes infection, like you may have like symptoms, uh, like flu-like symptoms in the beginning, but post that, like if you have the disease, you really have no symptoms other than your body trying to expel the viral particles out of, you know, fever blisters and cold sores, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anybody, you know, they don't get on TV and have these commercials for herpes drugs and say, you know, when my herpes flares up, I really get sick and I feel like I have a cold and have the flu. No, that that's you just there's really no disease attached to it. It's just like an immune response that happens. Mm-hmm. So I mean you're just in a constant state of infection and shedding viral particles. Like diseases are usually going to be associated with bacterial bacterial uh, things. Mm-hmm. Whereas like a, a widespread infection is going to be viral where the virus comes in, it infects a body, takes the body over in order to reproduce itself to infect more people. Okay, I think I see what you're saying as far as like the whole distinction between disorder, disease, and infection. Like a disorder would be like diabetes. Diabetes isn't a disease. Yeah, diabetes, it's a disorder because something is not working the way it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. Like you, if you have diabetes, your pancreas is not working the way it's supposed to work. So yeah. it's it's a disorder. It's not a disease. Okay. Are we well, recording this? Yeah. Oh, well, man. So we're actually not here to talk about oh. uh, diseases or STIs. That was good stuff. Yeah. This could be, we should have talked about that in the beginning. All right. Like from like, this should be the whole episode. Just talk about us. Yeah. Talk yeah. about STDs. We could make that an episode. I think we should. Mm. Not not today though. Not today. I got to do today. some research on that. Obviously. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> Uh, but today, no, today we're talking about um, carbonation. Teachers off task. Yep. This is Dr. Bob. This is Paul Farrar. Thank you guys for joining us. Ferdy Whistlebird is also with us mm-hmm. in spirit. In spirit. In spirit. Because we're going to be talking about some spirits today, maybe too. This is true. This mm-hmm. is true. Ferdy Whistlebird is going to be joining us uh, momentarily. But uh, right now, it's just you got Dr. Bob and Paul Farrar. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about? Well, we're going to be talking about um, Car Beer Nation. Car Beer Nation. (laughs) Yeah, this is the nation of our beer. Um, Right after this short little moment of silence. And we're back talking about carbonation. So what? Well, let's first let's establish what carbonation is, and a lot of you guys probably know what carbonation is. Um, but like, it's what? What? Where do we see carbonation, Doctor Bob? Well, we see it in well in drinks mostly. You mm-hmm. know, we see it in sodas. I don't know if there's any sodas that are not carbonated. That's a good question. I don't. I don't think there is. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I I think the entire the name soda. It means it's carbonated. What is the origin of the name soda? That's actually 
Well, so like you have baking soda, so there's calcium carbonate in soda, like in soda, right? Well, so Same. baking soda doesn't it actually like help the the yeast or help uh, it, it 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 makes gas essentially? Yeah, so it'll start dissolving in the water and releasing carbon dioxide when you put it in water. Okay, so it's uh, it's a carbonate. Okay, it's not necessarily calcium carbonate. That's what eggshells are made out of. If you listen to our last episode. But it re- it's a it's a chemical that's going to release a carbonate, and it's going to in turn going to release CO two into a liquid. Oh, okay. So sodium carbonate is probably where it comes from. Yeah, yeah. So Na NaCO three, yes, hmm. NaCO three is a formula for sodium carbonate. I mean, you you know the the chemistry of it probably better than I do. I know some of it, but I mean you're. <laughs> <laughs> I teach I, physics and math. Not I'll, I'll do my best. The sciences of I mean, the uh, chemistry and biology. Well, my, I mean, my doctorate is not in chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a doctor of science. I'm a doctor of education. You know, I'm just like every other PhD in education. I'm completely full of crap. Yeah, but you have a master's. Oh, I have three of them. Yeah, I have three master's degrees, none of which are in uh, are in chemistry. Well, then I guess we're just going to be shooting dark here. I do know some pretty interesting things about carbonation though so so we started with soda but there's far more things there where carbonation exists far more yeah, familiar so, things well it's okay so carbonation actually first started in the 18th century in the 1700s um there was an englishman named joseph Priestley, and he first came up with the method of carbonation and what carbonation really is for everyone is it is a method of dissolving CO2, carbon, di- carbon dioxide, in water. Mm-hmm. So you can dissolve a gas in water. And that is what carbonation is. So the first thing he did was he uh, carbonated water. That was the first thing he carbonated. And he figured out that if he filled a vat full of carbon dioxide and water and put it under pressure, that the carbon dioxide would eventually dissolve into the water. And that's the first instance of carbonated water, which we call soda water. Mm-hmm. Who knew? Who knew? And then, you know, people started putting flavors and started putting uh, Coca-Cola in it, cocaine. Tonic water. And, and, yeah, and, wait, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. You know, well, I mean, Coca-Cola originally, it was, it was cocaine and some caffeine and a little bit of caramel. And they carbonated it and just gave it to people. Mm-hmm. And it was delicious. Yep. So I found out recently, and I don't know, it's it, it kind of makes sense, but like early beer that was made, I should say, I say early beer, but beer that was made from not even that long ago used to be flat because there yeah. are certain conditions that have to be made in order to in order to carbonate something, mainly exactly. mainly the, the pressurization. Yeah. So if you're gonna if you're gonna carbonate something, it has to be in an enclosed system. There cannot be any leaks. It has to be perfectly enclosed, and you have to be able to pressurize that that tank mm-hmm. now even further especially with beer that you have to have it at a, a certain pressure if it gets uh, at a higher pressure the beer will naturally go flat if i understand it correctly higher pressure yeah well I mean, high pressure is it's, it's fine but it's if it like it has to stay cold in order to stay carbonated if you're distributing it then you want to distribute it in a refrigerated container, which is why you see, you know, the Budweiser, Coors Light. Mm-hmm. They all have their own separate little, uh, you know, box trucks that they that they uh, that they travel this stuff in because it has to remain refrigerated. Otherwise, it goes flat. And so, before the invention of refrigeration, which is only as early as 
or I should say commercial refrigeration. Yeah, late 1800s. Yeah. Early that, 1900s. All the beer before that was actually flat beer. Yeah, and I I mean, I make my own beer. I We have some of my home brew right here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, before I bottle it and carbonate it, it like I've tasted it and it's it's just it's just not the same. And I think it's because I've I'm so used to drinking carbonated beer up mm-hmm. to this point. Like a flat beer to me is disgusting. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't I don't I can't imagine like living a life where I drank flat beer my whole life. I probably wouldn't drink beer. I probably mm-hmm. would drink something else. Yeah. Here's my question. Why don't they carbonate whiskey or something? That is a good question. Can you? Because it's it's more it's a higher alcohol content. Which uh, yeah, but can you? I know I know with water you can dissolve gas into it pretty easily. But I imagine the the viscosity of of or the the you know the elements the the components of uh, alcohol might not be as easy to dissolve things in. I could be wrong though. Hey, you know that's that's something that we could we could definitely research uh, mm-hmm. more or less. But if um, you've successfully carbonated alcohol before. Reach out to us. Yeah, let us know. We'll put you on our podcast. And hey, you know what? All of our podcast guests get free gifts from thelongwayadventures.com. Mm-hmm. You're going to have people lining up at the door. Right. But did you... Okay, so there's multiple ways to carbonate a drink or carbonate something that's water-based. So like mm-hmm. I brew my own beer. So one of the ways that I... What I carbonate is actually called a slow carbonation process or, or bottle comp- carbonation. And what you do is you take dextrose, which is corn sugar. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a different type of sugar. And you dissolve that in water uh, by boiling it. So you dissolve about probably about half a pound of dextrose per five gallons of beer. Mm-hmm. So you take half a pound of dextrose and you put it in boiling water and you make a super saturated solution. And... Um, and then you put that in your beer that you're going to bottle and make sure that everything's evenly spread out. And then you bottle it. And what will happen is that the residual yeast left in the beer that you've bottled will start to process that sugar. And when yeast processes sugar, it releases carbon dioxide. It does carbon dioxide and it's a, it's a chemical process. Yeah. Right? The, the yeah. yeast that takes the sugar... And it takes water too, and then turns it into carbonation or carbon dioxide, which is dissolved in the water, and then the alcohol, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, for so, I was like, it's like, what are you getting at, man? It's like, oh, you wanted me to say alcohol? Yeah. So for every for for one molecule of sugar, it's two molecules of ethanol or alcohol, the the alcohol that we drink. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, um, so what will happen is that yeast will start processing that sugar. And release carbon dioxide. And as long as you have that bottle sealed, it'll start to build up pressure. So the more carbon dioxide that the yeast releases, it'll start to build up pressure in that bottle. And at about uh, 6 to 10 PSI, pounds per square inch, uh, that CO2 at certain temperatures will begin to dissolve into that liquid. And that's how you carbonate things in the bottle. Mm-hmm. And if you have too much sugar, you'll have an overly carbonated beer. So I don't know if you remember when you we were here, I think it was like the first or second podcast we had. Mm-hmm. You opened that one bottle of beer that I made. Oh, and that it, IPA? The, the foam just went everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So like if it's over carbonated, you're going to have a really foamy beer. Mm-hmm. So if you put too much sugar in that beer before you bottle it, 
when you open it, it's just going to, I mean, there's going to be just foam everywhere. Yep. So that's like one of the, so yeah, that's why you need to control how much sugar you put in there before you bottle it. And you also need to control uh, the temperature because like some yeast is going to work at an optimum temperature. If it's too cold, the yeast will not want to process the sugar. If it's too hot, it'll process the sugar too hot or too much and... That's why you need to control. Read the directions is what I'm going to say. Just read the directions. Because <laughs> I did, I did something similar. I started. I make it. I made a. Uh, what is it called? Kombucha. Kombucha, which is a. I found it's a very similar process to making alcohol, except instead of using, um, you know, hops and 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 barley and grains. Whatever. What else do you use with beer? What you know to hops, barley, grain, molasses, molasses. Yeah. Instead of using all that, you use sugar for the yeast. The yeast has to eat something, mm-hmm. and then tea. So kombucha is really just fermented tea. Yeah. Yeah. But when you when you do the same bottling process where you you know you, you let it ferment and then you put it in bottles that are that, that can be pressurized. Um they call them what are they call them? Are they Klein bottles? The I'm ones not with sure. the lock lock top. Oh, these? Yeah. Uh I don't know. I just call them big beer bottles. Well, you have <laughs> so they have these bottles that you can <laughs> <laughs> they had these little plastic bit on the top and the rubber, and you can actually lock those yeah, down. It, it and clamps it a lot down. Of, yeah, yeah, it clamps down with quite, with a quite a bit of force, and so that it, it can it can pressurize that that bottle with uh, with plenty of pressure. And you use that, you can do that same thing with kombucha too. And all really having that pressure is necessary to create the carbonation because the the, the liquid or the the gas won't dissolve in the liquid unless it is pressurized. Right. But the same right, thing works right. with kombucha. Um, I wonder like how many things that would work with as far as like fermentation goes. I think. Uh, I think it it all works. Like could you, I, could you make carbonated kimchi? Um yeah, but I don't know why you would want to. You would just have you'd have to put yeast and sugar into the kimchi mm-hmm. and then there's going to be like some some sugar that's going to get dissolved into the actual kimchi. Mm-hmm. So you and you'd have sweet kimchi instead of like kimchi's kind of sour. That's yeah, why has you, the, has yeah. the very uh, like vinegary kind of acidic flavor. Yeah, you'd have sweet kimchi, and I think the make it sound bad. It actually is really good. I think the vinegar would actually kill the yeast. To tell you the truth. Oh yeah. So like yeast, there alco- is still alco- some process in there, right, for the fermentation. Like there's got to be some live cultures. Yeah, but I don't think it's I don't think it's yeast. I, I mean, we can look it up. But, <laughs> um, well, while we're looking that up, we're gonna take a short little break so you can hear a message from our sponsor, and then we're gonna get right back to talking about some carbonation. Hey guys, Paul Ferrar here. As you've probably heard from um, recent episodes and stuff, we are sponsored by the Longway Adventures. Uh, if you ever wanted to go on a um, motorcycle trip, cross country, or long distance, any kind of uh, any kind of long road trip, go uh, look up the Longway Adventures. Our buddy Terry here, he's been um, he's sponsoring us so we can get the word out about doing some motorcycle trips. If you ever wanted to travel to Colorado or imagine any other place in the United States, he'd be happy to work with you doing these um doing these fantastic motorcycle trips highly suggest it so uh yeah that is at the longwayadventures.com let's get back on task y'all and we're back talking about kimchi kimchi mm-hmm. can you carbonate kimchi well, okay so we were saying that uh, i think the vinegar in the kimchi would kill the yeast and well that's why they so they don't ferment kimchi with yeast. They fer- ferment it with a, a lactobacillus, 
and uh, different, actually multiple different types of bacteria that produce lactic acid. Okay. So that's, so you couldn't use, so those, okay, those, so those bacteria would be acid resistant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not acid proof, but like acid resistant. Yeah. And that's what drives that fermentation process. Whereas fermentation that produces alcohol uses yeast and there's multiple multiple types of yeast that they use so like the yeast that they use for this beer that we're drinking which is my homemade irish red ale Mm -hmm. is totally different than a like a really dark guinness beer it's two different types of yeast Mm -hmm. do we so can we explain like that hopefully by now you understand a yeast is alive it is a living thing it's a microorganism Mm -hmm. yes and so like we eat food and we process food and basically what we do when we eat food is we break it down into its most uh, molecular components of proteins and sugars Mm -hmm. and sugars is where we get our basically our readily available energy well uh, yeast takes a simple sugar it eats a simple sugar uh, and just like we inhale oxygen and exhale CO2, well, this yeast is going to basically inhale a sugar molecule and exhale two molecules of ethyl alcohol mm-hmm. and one molecule of CO2. That's it's fascinating. And it's, 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 it's... I think it's interesting that I can like just... It can do that and then have it immediately dissolve... In the liquid, like well, it, can it, exist it doesn't. Under pressure it doesn't too. immediately dissolve. Immediately dissolve in the liquid. So, like when you're making beer, you know you have to ferment the beer first. So you make the you boil all your ingredients of the beer together in a big pot, and it, so it's grains, hops, and then like I call it molasses, but it's basically like a syrup that's like has a really high sugar content, mm-hmm. and you boil all that together. And then you have to cool it down as fast as you know as fast as possible. You want to cool it down as fast as possible because you want the least amount of possibility that you're going to get contaminants into that that pot that's holding all the beer. Mm, yeah. So you cool it down as fast as possible, and then you put it into a fermenter, and then you dump the yeast in there. And it's just it's a very small amount of yeast. It's maybe like like two grams of yeast, mm-hmm. not very much. And well, it goes a long way. Yeah. <laughs> right there, you go. Um, and then you put it in there and you put it what's called an airlock. So it's not a vacuum, but what it does is it lets air out, but it doesn't let any air in. So as that yeast is processing that sugar, we call it the bubbling phase. That airlock will bubble because it, it's basically we use water to keep the to to make the airlock. Mm-hmm. And so air can get out, but air can't get in. So that yeast is releasing CO2. And during the fermenting phase, uh, it's releasing CO2 and that thing will bubble. It'll bloop, 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 bloop. Mm-hmm. And it'll, you know, that lasts for two weeks until uh, either A, the solution reaches a point where there is a very small amount of sugar remaining to where the processing of sugar by the yeast is a minimum, so it stops bubbling, or the acidity level of the beer reaches a point where it kills all the yeast. Mm-hmm. The CO2 actually is not. That happens later. So then after the bubbling phase, we take that. It's called wort. It's not called beer yet. Mm-hmm. We take that and we put it in in another container. And we have our dissolved dextrose. And we mix it in with our wort. 
and then we bottle that, and then the remaining yeast will process that dextrose, mm-hmm. and then so within each bottle, they'll start to have it'll become pressurized because the yeast starts to uh, process that dextrose and releases CO two, and then at a certain point, it'll stop bubbling out of the liquid. It'll actually dissolve into the liquid. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. If you if you bottle it and then you watch it initially, you'll actually if you really really want to do this. You could watch the bottles when you first bottle it and you'll see really tiny bubbles coming out. And then at a certain point when the uh, pressure, air pressure in the top of the bottle reaches a certain point, it'll stop bubbling out because that pressure will keep that uh, CO2 from coming out of the liquid and and it'll make it dissolve into the liquid. Now, this is something that I didn't know. I had the misconception because I thought they had these huge vats where they were making this beer, like big beer companies. Any brewery has these big vats where they they ferment the beer, but the the carbonation doesn't happen there. The carbonation doesn't happen until after they bottle it. Now, they might have like pressurized vats, but there's there's, uh, the the significant, you know, the, the the most carbonation that you get is from after they bottle it and so after they bottle it they do let it sit for yeah they let it um, age yeah for for you know a week weeks or two yeah usually uh for the homebrew stuff that i make it's two weeks mm-hmm. and that's that's the slow carbonation process yeah so um, I, they do have faster processes though like they, they have um and uh there, there's some brewers, breweries that do this if they're if they can't make their their product fast enough or if there's more of a demand for their product than than they can have available then they'll do what's called push carbonating or force force carbonation force uh, carbonation or push carbonation where they will use um they will yeah, it's it's for like force carbonation yeah, yeah and it's it's mainly for like kegs if you have if you're like distributing kegs for you know whatever uh, bars that you're trying to get them to they'll they'll do force carbonation well they'll actually pump co2 into the keg of their beer of their fermented beer that's not carbonated yet because they haven't bottled it right and then and they'll they'll force carbonate it that way yeah, it's just like and, the same yeah. thing as like a big version of a soda stream yeah it's like when we're at, at college parties you know it, it's they're doing the same thing when you first go buy a keg from the beer store, the first thing you think you should do is like push some pressure into it. Well, if you, some of you guys who drink out of kegs in college, (laughs) you know, if you put, if you pump that tap too much, then guess what comes out when you open up that spigot? It's really, really foamy because you just over pressurized and that, the carbonation is like being kept in that liquid. It's not coming out inside the keg. So as soon as you open up that spigot, it's all coming out. The carbonation is coming out as soon as that water, as soon as that beer leaves the hose. So that's why you get like a really, really foamy beer Mm -hmm. on like a keg that's been shaken up a lot because the pressure inside of it builds up so much and it makes, it makes it over carbonated. Mm. So, so it, it almost just like it. It's, it's almost like if you uh, unscrew a bottle cap and it unpressurizes too quickly. Like you want the chain, the the chains from going from the pressure inside the keg to coming out of the keg as, to be minimal. As minimal, exactly. Because yeah. yeah, if it's too much, then it, it just yeah. Ideal is actually I, I looked this up. It's actually like six to twelve psi. Really? So yeah, what you're talking about. So what you're talking about is is you said forced carbonation. There's actually two processes of forced carbonation. There's slow. And then there's fast. Mm-hmm. So like the fast one takes about 24 hours where they, so they put the beer in the kegs and they fill it up to around 25 PSI, which is, which is quite a bit. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. 25 PSI. And it, they fill that in, empty space with CO2. So at 25 PSI, that C, that CO2 is going to dissolve into the beer 
and carbonate the beer, and it's ready to drink in 24 hours. Mm-hmm. The chance you take with that is it getting over carbonated. Like if the temperature is not right, if maybe like the atmospheric pressure changes a little bit, there's a chance that it could get over carbonated. Mm-hmm. So that's why that one is mostly undesirable. But if you're a large brewer, then you don't really care. You're just like, you're just trying to get product out. If it tastes a little bit different, big deal. Like I've had Bud Lights that, that, you know, one bottle may taste a little bit different than the other one. It mm-hmm. just, it just happens. It's the way they go, you know? And then you have like a slow carbonation, the slow force carbonation where you're under like about six to six to 12 PSI. And you do the same thing. You fill that, the, the space of that keg with CO2, six to 12 PSI, and you let it sit for about, you know, five to 10 days. And that actually will result in a less foamy beer. That's the one that's more desirable from like a homebrew standpoint. And, you know, people who want a keg beer at home, you know, just put it a little bit lower pressure and let it sit for a longer period of time. And then you're not going to have a, a real foamy beer when you, when you pour it. Ah, okay. So you have fast and slow forced carbonation. That sounds that still still sounds kind of like a kind of like almost a natural carbonation if you only do it to like six psi. Because it are you saying that under that pressure it'll still take in the carbonation or the the carbon dioxide at six psi? Yeah, it'll it'll still the carbon dioxide will dissolve into the liquid. It's just going to be at a slower rate. Okay. So the more psi you have, the faster. That CO2 is going to dissolve into the liquid. Mm-hmm. The lower the PSI, the slower it's going to dissolve into the liquid. But it will dissolve into the liquid yeah. either way. And yeah. that's why they let it okay. sit for a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, so there are some physics equations that are involved into that. And then then there's like the if you if you can't wait, if you cannot wait any longer for your stuff to get carbonated. There is a technique that's called crank and shank. Mm-hmm. Crank and shake. I've never heard of this. Okay, so you take your keg, right? And you fill it with CO2 up to 30 plus PSI, right? Mm-hmm. And you sit there with the keg and you shake it for like 10, 15 minutes. And basically your 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 keg will be carbonated within 10 to 15 minutes. That's crazy. Does it, doesn't it have to be like cold though? Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah, well, yeah, it's cold before you start shaking it. Like okay, it's already, yeah, okay. re- yeah, it's already refrigerated. Because if you try to do that while while it's warm, I don't. Yeah, think well, if be you effective. do that while it's hot, I think that'd be a really bad idea. <laughs> like, fill that thing up with thirty psi while it's hot. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, so it's it's refrigerated already, and mm-hmm. then you fill it with CO two, uh, and then you, and then basically you just so you put it on a flat surface and you roll it back and forth just to shake the liquid. Mm-hmm. And you do that for about ten to fifteen or twenty minutes, and that that carbonates it. Okay, but for for regular beer though, after you after you bottle it and uh, you know add add the dextrose, um, you still let it sit unrefrigerated for a little bit, don't you? Because I know that's yeah, how it is yeah, with yeah, yeah yeah. So these uh, so like once you bottle it, you want to put it just like when you're actually fermenting it. You want to put it in like a dark place. Uh, I put it underneath the bar. And I let it sit here for a minimum, minimum two weeks. Yeah. Sometimes I'll get antsy and I'll open it up at like 10 days just to see what it's like. But you want to, you want to do it for about two weeks. Okay. So, um, there is uh so that's, that's essentially how you would do it with beer. It's you use, um, yeast, 
you let the yeast uh, eat up the sugar, spit out its alcohol and its carbon dioxide. Um, what what other case like where where did it all start? Because I know we do this with beer, but that's not where it started. Where'd what start? Like fermentation or just like carbonation? Well, it started in the late late 18th century. I'm sorry, yeah, late 18th century, like 1700s, um, and it was just uh, this guy just found a way. Like I think, are we talking about forced carbonation? We're just talking about carbonation in general. Okay, because I it was it's my impression that it all started with champagne. Like champagne was the first carbonated beverage that existed because they were just making wine, and when they you know bottled it, they just happened to bottle it with a with a seal, and that seal like after it sat for a while allowed it to carbonate. I imagine like imagine being one of the first people to drink a carbonated drink. Well, I mean, I think well what I've read is the first carbonated beverage was was just distilled water. It was distilled water. Really? Yeah. And so if you carbonate distilled water, we call that soda water. Mm-hmm. So that was... It's, how do they carbonate it? It put it under pressure. So they put distilled water under pressure with CO2. I feel like that's still forced carbonation, but like natural... It carb- is. I feel it like is. That- but it's just water. All I'm saying is like it's... it's that That's just the first one. That's the first one. But... Didn't champagne exist before that? Champagne's existed a long time, hasn't it? I don't know. I don't drink champagne. Oh. I have no idea. I don't drink champagne. Well, correct but, me if I'm wrong, listeners, but I'm pretty sure I, it was champagne's where it all started. But that's why they call it bubbly. <laughs> it is why they call it bubbly, but I'm not sure that um we're gonna look it up like right about now. I'm not sure like that I think once the carbonation process was put like was put in that that they probably started carbonating champagne okay you think they discovered carbonation and then decided to try it with champagne well because that that's still like separating the carbon dioxide and pumping it with with that stuff like that's that still sounds like fourth forced carbonation like you can't just pump carbon dioxide without having the technology to do that but they still did have the technology to carbonate wine well yeah okay before they separated before they could have yeah that that's comes that's okay i was un i was confusing what you were asking was i not asking the right question no 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 no. (laughs) you were i'm just i'm just a caveman and stupid so uh no so they carbonate in the bottle yeah so you use the yeast that's when they would use so they make their champagne that still has like residual sugar in it and residual yeast, and you bottle it, you, bam, you put the bottle down, you cork it, and then torque down the cork so it doesn't come out, and then that yeast processes that sugar, and then you, you're basically, you're carbonating the, the champagne in the bottle. Yeah, okay. Because if you ask, if you if you try to find out what the first carbonated beverage is, it's just gonna t- it's just gonna lead you to a bunch of carbonated water, and it's like, it's, yeah, carbonation existed way before that. Yeah, carb, yeah. Yeah. It's just, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's all. It all comes down to being able to seal a vat or a bottle with cultures a, that can. Do yeah, that. with a, yeah, exactly with yeast cultures that can produce CO2 and produce alcohol. Mm-hmm. So it, just imagine being like the first human to sit there and say, "Dude, if I seal this up and I put some put some oranges in it and like take this bacteria that I found in the woods and put it together." 
I can get drunk. <laughs> like, just imagine being that guy. Oh, like the first person to even just to make beer. Just like, yeah. look, if I do this, it makes beer. And then people just got drunk and decided to start experimenting with making their own beer. That's why there's such a culture for it right now. Yeah. Or just like to this to this day, I feel like it's because there, it's, you know, somebody did it and was so fascinated by it. They just kept experimenting with it and experimenting with it. And now we have all these different, uh, all these different alcohols and stuff. Like I want to know some of which are carbonated. Like I want to know where, like who figured it out because, like, I mean, you go far, as far back as like ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. You know, there's alcohol, and and like you know, you go, you talk, you read the Bible. There's alcohol in the Bible, mm-hmm. and you know, you talk about the Old Testament written pre BC. You know, written in the BC um, or before Christ, like how long did alcohol exist before that? And you look at these ancient ancient cultures that are still surviving today like you know bushmen in africa and then you have these amazonian tribes they pro they they make alcohol mm-hmm. like they ferment fruit they figure they find yeast and they ferment fruit and they drink it well i feel like yeast is it's not the hardest thing to come across like it, it exists naturally just yeah yeah, so I've I've heard that the uh, the the most likely means of of discovery for fermentation and brewing beer was probably somebody had like an open container of of um, of wheat or of grains that they were going to use to make. Uh, I don't even know if they made bread at that point. In fact, there's a similar relationship between beer and bread, but they just left it open and then it rained and they just kind of left it and forgot about it until they decided to, you know, they, they saw that it smelled weird, decided to drink it and then got drunk and was just like, whoa, <laughs> but here's let's the do thing, that again. Like, you know, you, okay, they left this out and it ferments and it smells weird. Like, yeah, man, you know what? Hey, bro, let's drink this shit and see what happens. You in? Like. I would be like, no, I'm oh, not. See, I'm not just, in. Maybe they were all just like really, really timid, and then on a dare, somebody was just like, "Hey, I dare you to drink this," and then suddenly that person became super sociable, and everyone's just like, "Wow, I want to be that guy's friend. I'll have what he's having." <laughs> I love you, bro. I love you, man. Like, yeah, okay, you know, dude, life sucks. What are you talking about? No, oh, man, man, I got chased by the saber tooth tiger earlier, but you know what? This drink really made me feel better. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! Like it just, was like helpful in the grieving process. Like, hey, look, we know you know your significant other had to get married at that time, but just, here, try try some of this. It'll make you feel better. Yeah, I didn't want to consecrate consummate the marriage, so like, here, drink this, and then all of a sudden, like, she's cool with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ooh, Ooh. is that kind of sexist? That, is that bad? Uh, I'm talking about like <laughs> ten thousand BC people. Okay, like, give me a break. I'm mm-hmm. a guy. I don't know any better. Hey, like, culture was different back then. You know, it, it definitely was. Like, yeah. I mean. I mean, culture was different like a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. and you know, think about prohibition. Oh man, think about prohibition. So I'm told also. I don't know. This might also just be you know flack that I've heard that has, makes no sense. But before prohibition, it wasn't even beer that was the most popular, but it was cider. Like alcoholic cider was everyone's main choice of drink. So like apple cider. It's like fruity stuff. Well, no, alcoholic cider. Yeah. Yeah. Because what, uh, what what I didn't realize, what kind of blew my mind is that the majority of apple trees don't make edible apples. Yeah. 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 They make they make apples that are really not good for anything but cider, which kind of puts into perspective Johnny Appleseed's going around planting apple seeds across America. Wasn't really Dude, he's trying make, to He's get making people. booze. Yeah. He's making booze, he's, that's, man. That's all for people to get drunk on. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, you think about it, like 17, 1800s, you don't have TV, you don't have, 
you don't have like wide you don't have libraries like mm-hmm. all over the place you don't have all this stuff what the hell are you going to do to pass the time mm-hmm. like you can only work so uh, you can only work until the sun goes down yep like and you know god you're just li- you're scratching out a living fighting indians and dysentery and all these things like you know what i'm going to find a way to make some alcohol cuz uh that would really help me go to bed at night and not worry about uh, you know a wolverine coming into my window and chewing off my toes. Mm. Well, so I think so. The way the the way prohibition comes into it, to my understanding, is that uh, it was all cider until prohibition came along and they cut down the majority of apple trees because they didn't want people using them to make cider they or alcoholic down. cider oh and okay. which is why they kind of resorted to everyone that had all of the uh, the grain the the um wheat farms who were making all this bread and decided to utilize those resources to make a different alcoholic beverage which is what gave rise to the popularity in and and um in beer because they had those resources they no longer had all the apple trees that they used to that they were making cider out of and actually, I, I imagine it probably they probably realized that grain grain is more plentiful than the apple trees that they had. Like apple trees only grow so many apples, but grain, you, you, I feel like you could get a lot more yield from grain. Did Another you, reason probably why it became so much more popular than cider. Did you know that uh, Russia from 1914 to 1925 had an era of prohibition? Prohibition is not strictly in the United States. I just really? learned this. What are what like, there are multiple that. places that have uh, outlawed the consumption of alcohol. So, for example, um, Iceland from 1913 to 1933, Iceland outlawed alcohol. Interesting, right? Beer, a beer. Okay, it says here beer was still prohibited until 1989 in Iceland. Wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, but you know, I, I feel like I heard that Iceland had a long period of prohibition. It's just kind of interesting. I wonder if it more or less isn't so much about actually trying to better the community, but like, is it a marketing ploy? Yeah. What's is it that about? A conspiracy? What's it about? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the United States enacted prohibition. Why? Like, what was the big moneymaker in the United States well, from 1920 to 1933? Like, that's a big question. Like, why did they enact prohibition? Like, Are you what, saying it was because they made so much money or is that? Well, everything, everything political is, is money, mm-hmm. right? So, I thought it had to do with just like, you know, cultural value, values, like religious values that they decided to, to, pro, to, to put that into prohibition. You know what I think it was? I have mm-hmm. a theory. What's your theory? So the corruption in the political United States, right? Oh, oh think, yeah. Think about okay. so who's going to make the most money during a prohibitive era? It's in 1920s, 1933 in the United States. So you think it was the people that had the alcohol? Yeah. So like you have the mob, right? The mob is the ones running, running like running nightclubs, selling like uh, illegal booze. Yeah, yeah. The you speakeasies. Know, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're making money. Right, mm-hmm. they are actually influencing, paying off these politicians to keep it illegal because the mob is making so much money. It's uh, like okay. present day cartels, like you know the drug trade. It's a billion dollar industry, mm-hmm. you know, and the only person, the only people making money off of it are the cartels. Mm-hmm. And people if you privatize make, it, then right. anybody can make money off of it. If you private, if you legalize it, 
guess what? The cartels go away. They 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 go broke. Mm-hmm. They don't have any money. They can't do anything because they can't control the product. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They can they can't do it. Like, That's hey man, interesting. And it, it's weird because I've been listening and reading all these things about like uh, legalizing the uh, legalizing drugs and legalizing marijuana and opioids, and just look at the argument. You're just like, okay, well, if you privatize it and you tax it and you price it accordingly, you're just like, oh man, like you know, you look at the good sides. The cartels go away. Uh, mm-hmm. Drug dealers go away. There's nobody standing on the corner. There's nobody using kids to sell drugs. There's nobody. It doesn't. Ha- it's it's gone in the blink of an eye, because all of a sudden those get they're out of business. Mm-hmm. And you just think about it, like, but is it okay for the government to regulate that? Like, you know, that's 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 the that's the dice game. And I would love to tell you my my opinion on it, but you know, this isn't a political podcast. Yeah, so you could, I guess, it's kind of draw a lot of parallels to the state of, of um, say, not even the state of economy, although it does kind of play a role in that, because you see all these states that are legalizing it and, you know, reaping pretty grand benefits off of it. Yeah, apparently Colorado's awesome. I, I mean, economically, I don't, you know, I, I, there's, it is, there are arguments to be made that there are, um, you know, effects, negative effects that it's had, but. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like, to everything, like, you know. I, I think I, I think the age limit for everything should be 21 because mm-hmm. your brain is not fully developed until, um, you know, most people, I think the average, what's it say, like 25, 26, where your frontal lobe is becomes fully developed. For males, I've heard that's the yeah. case. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, Jesus Christ, when I was 26, I was still pretty stupid. <laughs> so average. Is the average. Yeah, I was I was pretty I was pretty average. But. Uh, I, I think 21 should be should be the age for everything, and um, but the real issue is is you know minors getting it, you yeah. Know, 18 year olds. There's gonna be there's always gonna be a black market for 18 year olds to get their hands on beer, get their hands on weed, like whether it's legal or not. They're 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 gonna find a way to get it, mm-hmm. and that's just that's just the way it is. Like when I was six, 16, 17 years old in high school. We found ways to get alcohol. That sounds very absolutist, though. Like, what it's, if there was ways to change that? Well, you, know? you you tell me how you can prevent teenagers from getting drugs and alcohol, and we will write a book, and we will never have to work again. <laughs> like, that'll be it. You tell me how you can get teenagers to not break the law, to not break the rules, to quit doing stupid stuff, to stop doing things that they're not supposed to do, let me know how to do that. We will, I do. I'll write a book. Well, you know, this is this is a perfect physics problem. All you have to do is create a closed system. You know, because the, there's things coming in and things coming out, and so obviously it's an open system. But you broaden your definition of a system until it becomes a closed system, and then you isolate the things that are the the, the transports. There's just too many variables. There's too <laughs> many variables in hand. Like if kids want alcohol, they're going to get alcohol. Mm-hmm. Like they can just do what I did. You know, I, I just open system of you. I just went and parked my truck outside of a liquor store and waited for somebody who looked of ill morals. And I went up and I've handed him a twenty dollar bill and I was like, "Hey, man, can you buy me some booze?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure. What do you want?" And I'm like, "This." I just tell him what I wanted. And I gave him a twenty dollar. Just gave him twenty bucks to buy me whatever. It's like keep the change. Mm-hmm. You know, so we end up paying like, you know, fifty dollars for a case of beer. But it didn't matter because we had beer. Like that's that's the price that we were willing to take. And like kids have not really changed. They're they're doing the same stuff. They're gonna find 
Like if you tell them not to do something, they're going to do it. If you put a restriction, age restriction on it, people who are too young to do that, they're going to find a way to get it. Okay, so we should make an age restriction on time travel and then someone will, leave, someone will finally figure out a way to do it. And make an age restriction on teleportation. I think we should, I mean, once <laughs> we should, maybe that's what we should work on is just time travel. Yeah. Don't you have to travel faster than the speed of light? Well, the faster you travel, the slower you experience time. But they, uh, yeah, the theory is that they're that space and time are a uh, are, are somewhat of a fabric, and so if you increase your speed, you indent that fabric more, or if you increase your gravity, you indent that fabric more and more, so that time becomes skewed. However, it's still it's still a linear thing. It's still like moving forward. It's just a matter of like how fast you're moving forward. What you about know? in Superman two, where Superman? flies around the earth in the reverse rotation and makes the earth spin backwards and it turns back time and he goes and saves Lois Lane. Is that possible? Not to my understanding. You, I mean, you have mm-hmm. the degree in physics. I don't. <laughs> so you tell me. That's still, that's completely theoretical physics. I have no degree in theoretical like physics, if, but I humor the ideas. I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Superman 2? Mm-mm. Lewis, okay, so Lois Lane gets in the, so okay, Lex Luthor uh, devises this plan. We've gotten so off task. Uh, it, it's fine, <laughs> it's fine. And like Lois Lane is caught in this rock slide in her car, and and Superman can't save her. He gets there too late, and he like sits there. He's like, "What am I gonna do?" And he flies up into space, and he flies around the Earth in a reverse rotation, and goes so fast he makes the earth spin backwards and reverses time see now this is also uh, like the the thing of debate you know like reversing time is one thing but reversing our comprehension of time because time is really just a construct that we devise within our minds that we that is somehow consistent between you know this person and that person now we might we might think differently but we've all kind of decided you know what a minute is what a second is and that is so you know that that is somewhat consistent but if we could like because we all experience time but if we could broaden our comprehension of time to 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 exist every like to to understand everything that's happening to us within a a longer like a broader span of time rather than instantaneously each you know second by second that we're living in like what we call current time you know, that's that's kind of like if we if we could maybe just hack into our brains to to think of time like that, then that that'd be that'd be one thing to uh, to maybe consider. Like we're not really time traveling as much as we are traveling through our experiences. But our in that case, our experience would be somewhat somewhat um, solid. We could do a whole thing about time travel. Why right? isn't time <laughs> on a base 10 system? Why, I, uh, why, it can be. It, why are there not oh 100 gosh. seconds in a minute? Why are there not 10 minutes in an hour or 100 minutes in an hour? Why are there not 100 hours in a day? So I, I think the reason is because, you know, the, the moon goes through 12 cycles in a year. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't even know how you would. I, I guess when they made the first clock, it was easy to consider, you know, 12 intervals rather than 10 mm-hmm. because we hadn't really devised. Like we, it's 10, 10 is still arbitrary. Like we could have a base, you know. 
base 16 system like a base 16 system exists and is utilized in a lot of um what is it a lot of uh coding things where they have one two three four five six seven eight nine and then instead of going to double digits it goes a b c d i think it just goes up to a b c d e and f i think g is also in there and then it starts at one 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 two okay and or one zero one 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 two and then it goes like one a one b one c so like the, the that's just the amount of digits that we have to represent the numbers is our base 10. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be that way though. So that's arbitrary, but it would still be much easier if we had a time system that was more that where we didn't use the symbols that were based in um, 10, but mm-hmm. was still able to do like base, you know, six map. But even then it's still not consistent. So just, uh, you know, 60, 60, 24. Right, it just like seems, we go up to sixty, seems, yeah, and then we start doing things like, okay, well, it's one hour and one minute, one hour and two minute, but then that only goes up to twelve until it starts over again. But it still hasn't even been a full day yet. Makes no sense at all. Uh, yeah, it makes me so mad. It's crazy to me. Mm-hmm. I, 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 well, what's even more crazy to think about is that that is still a relatively new thing. Like it wasn't until trains were developed that, yeah, that the you know that that's kind of what gave us our time zones where we where we decided you know we need to have something that's more consistent. Like if I leave Chicago at at you know ten in the morning, I'm gonna arrive at what's it called in you know four in the afternoon. But it's going to take more time than it than it seems. Like it's not from ten to four where you have what is that? Yeah, it six can't, hours. It can't be four p.m. in Chicago and four p.m. in Billings, Montana, at the same time. Like, yeah, because Bill, you know, Chicago is gonna be dark where Billings Montana is not going to be dark at the same time like so mm-hmm. they had to come up with those time zones yeah and so now they have a UTC which is the universal time zone and then everything else is based off of that like here in um, the the Midwest we have what is central standard we live in central standard time yeah. I always have to look up and remind myself but that is actually six UTC so our day starts on the sixth hour of the universal time clock hmm. okay as far as I understand it, I could be completely wrong. If there's anybody that, where am I supposed I, to be talking about beer? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So other interesting things about beer. Oh in man. In terms of, uh, we got like really deep into. I know. And I know. But, um, Should we take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll get back on task and uh, we'll talk about beer? Sounds and, like a grand idea. And if anybody wants to learn how to make beer, we'll they'll join us for our our next uh, little little. Uh, Timestamp or whatever the hell you call it. I don't even know. What do you even call it? <laughs> to call the timestamp or? You know what? Just listen when we come back. Yeah, Damn just it. do All that. Right, go, we're going to be back in like 30 if you seconds. Skip this break, if you want to skip this break, just, you know, invent time travel. And then only do that, though, if you're 21 or over. All right. We'll be right back. <laughs> hey, guys. It's Paul Farrar. Here coming at you telling you that we have some merchandise. If you like Teachers Off Task, if you like listening to us, wear it proudly. We got bags, or as I like to call them, marsupiums. Uh, we've got some hoodies, some nice hooded, soft, sweated, sweated? Ooh, not, no, they don't have sweat on them until I guess you wear them, but really nice, soft, hooded sweatshirts. Sweatshirts, long sleeve shirts, they they feel great. Or you can just get a nice um the nice just regular old t-shirt. We also have mugs, we got all kinds of stuff. So visit our store at cafepress.com forward slash teachers off task. Let's get back on task, y'all. 
teachers off task. You did a really good job with those, by the way. Thank you. I keep saying it, but I keep meaning it. You did a really good job with those. I kind of just like threw those together. I was like, you know, I had I had a, I had a mission in mind, and it just came out a lot better. I, you know, I experimented with a little bit of the stuff too. It sounds but, really good. Like thanks. I really like it. I really thanks. like it. What we, so we're still talking about. We gotta get back on carbonation. Mm-hmm. We get, so we've gone over the different types of carbonation, like the forced carbonation, the slow, and the fast, and then the crank and shank. Crank and uh, crank, <laughs> crank and shake. Crank, crank and shake. Crank and shake. Oh, that's even faster. So yeah. <laughs> crank and shake. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay. Crank and shake, which is the the ten minute carbonation for uh, the avid beer, the rabid beer lovers. Mm-hmm. Um, or there's the, the slow, the yeah, uh, not the na- slow the, the natural carbonation natural with, with carbonation. yeast in the bottle. Um, but you had something you wanted to discuss. Yes. So there is this fascinating concept of carbonation, um, or one thing that is that you might not take into consideration when you're thinking of the carbonation and its effects on you and your body and within the glass and everything is that obviously you got things that are bubble. Essentially you have the carbon, the carbon dioxide bubbles up, turns back into a gas and it, what does it do once it does, once it does that inside the liquid? Does it just stay in the liquid or does it? Huh? float to the top yeah it floats to the top yeah, yeah but yeah. why uh be, be, because gas is less dense than liquid yeah because it's like that's the that's the buoyancy effect okay it has something less dense <laughs> it's like what are you getting out of here man is this a trick question i have no idea he's gonna get me damn this it is how, this is how i do my lectures too i don't just go and start <laughs> spitting facts at him i'm just like asking him questions but um but so you have uh, obviously the the gas is going to rise up to the top of the liquid. That's what gives you um, you know the the head on your on your beer. Um, but the foam, the foam, yeah. yes. If it's but what but, is necessary that you might not understand is necessary for this whole thing to occur for buoyancy to occur. The force of buoyancy that pushes lighter things up is for a stronger force to be pulling the heavier objects down. Oh, which in this case is usually gravity. Gravity is kind of the strongest I never force. even thought about that. Mm-hmm. Like, in order to have buoyancy, you, you have, have to, to have, have a stronger force. You have to have gravity. Mm-hmm. So what happens if you have a carbonated beverage in space? Well, if you're in space, if you're in orbit, and if you're in zero gravity, um, then you don't have that, you don't have that buoyant force. And you can kind of see that too. Whenever you have, uh, I don't know if you've seen the the videos with I think it's Chris Haddock or whoever it is in the, the Canadian in space. Mm-hmm. Kind of did all these experiments on YouTube. You can check it out. But he like wrung this towel out, and instead of the water going falling to the ground, it just kind of lingers there. Yeah, it just sticks. It sticks to the to yeah the towel. Now they they've they've tried soda in space. But what happens in space when you have zero gravity is the bubbles will form, mm-hmm. but they don't float to the top. They just kind of sit there in the liquid and uh <laughs> it, it, it almost kind of looks like you just have these air pockets within this liquid it's not it, it's kind of fascinating to see because usually you know you see the air kind of go up but that kind of presents a problem when you're trying to drink it in space because if you're here on earth and you drink a carbonated beverage i imagine most of us probably let out you know at least a little bit of belch which is natural because uh-huh. in while it's in your stomach, it, it releases those bubbles. It releases the carbonation. So, it becomes a gas, but then you're able to expel it. You're able to just burp it out. It's not a big deal. Can you not burp in space? Well, you can, but it's not just the air. The air, so that it doesn't separate in your stomach like it would otherwise here on Earth. 
if you can imagine trying so if you were standing upright and you drink a carbonated beverage mm-hmm. the all that gas goes to the top, top of your stomach where, okay. and then you can expel that gas out whereas mm-hmm. if you're in space it just stays in there with the liquid it, it like it pressurizes your stomach essentially and it, it expands in your stomach and so you feel like you you feel like you have to belch but when you belch it's not just air it's like it's, it's like what you, they call you, wet belch you basically like throw up yeah it's like what uh. it's like wet burps imagine imagine doing like a like a keg stand but like having to stay upside down and then feeling the need and to then belch. trying to burp yeah it doesn't oh god doesn't work that, that, that well. sounds terrible yeah so and that, that interestingly there's been a lot of like research from coca-cola from what i understand coca-cola has done a lot of research in trying to get astronauts drinking coca-cola like as a publicity stunt but they never managed to get to, to work out that issue have you ever done a keg stand I have, I think, like twice. What was your best time? Best? Oh, I don't. I, I don't. They didn't time it. it. No, we didn't time Dude, it. Dude, okay. So you're supposed to hang a nerd upside down on the keg stand, and you count it out. Oh yeah. Like okay, so I mean, this is a very, very little known fact. Very little known fact. Uh, Doctor Travis, who was with us a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Are we dishing uh, right now? Dishing. Dishing. No. No. Oh, yeah. But. Dr. Travis, I have witnessed him do a 55 second keg stand. Wow. Upside down. It was the most amazing thing. How like, could you do that? Like, we, after no, 50 seconds. We got you- tired of counting. There was only, <laughs> there was like, you know, 20 of us counting. We got to 30, and then, they, like, then there was 10 people counting. We got to 40. There's only five people counting, and then we got to 50. I was the only person left counting because everybody got everybody has ADD and they lost interest in <laughs> this guy doing a a keg stand for stand. for this long. I've never seen it before, but Dr. Travis has done a a 55, 57 second keg stand. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I'm I'm sure Travis does. Okay, but it was well over fifty seconds. It was not a minute, mm-hmm. but it's well over fifty seconds. And um, I'm ashamed to say this was in college. Uh, this was his freshman year, <laughs> and he was 17 years old. <laughs> mm. Shame, shame. I was, I was, uh, I was. I think I was 20, mm-hmm. and he, so I was a junior. He was a freshman, and uh, he was part of our little club. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, he had apparently never drank before in his life, and he just he did a keg stand that long and it was amazing. And if anybody can beat a keg, it was at least, it was in the fifties, a 50 second keg stand, dude, send us a video. We're about to open up a YouTube channel. Don't we will put die, it on. We Don't will die. <laughs> no, they're not, they're not going to die. Die of alcohol. Poisoning. No, Travis didn't die. He very, did. Very he did something. Beer. He did something very awful. Like mm-hmm. so, he puked in my truck. About, about, <laughs> about, about twenty minutes What'd later, you get? he puked in my truck. Uh, like I'm sitting there driving. We're going to our next destination, and he just like he started giggling. It was the funniest thing in the world. He just starts giggling. I'm like, hey man, what are you what are you chuckling at, bro? And like he just vomits <laughs> and like he's just sitting there in a puddle of his own vomit in the front seat of my truck and like I slam on the brakes and pull over to the side of the road and like pull him out of my truck mind you like I just met him like this is the first week of college for him like actually no it's not even the first week of college it's like the week before college even starts when all the freshmen get there and like you know we have our we had our little club 
I won't say what club it is, but we had our little club and like freshmen want to join our club. And, you know, so we had this big party mm-hmm. and uh, and <laughs> so he could not go to the he couldn't go to the next destination covered in vomit. Right. Mm-hmm. So in my truck, I had this I had a toolbox and I always kept like some spare clothes in the toolbox in my truck mm-hmm. just in case. You never know. You never know what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. We call in, in my car. It's the snap bag. Yeah. Situation not as planned. <laughs> and I'm a big guy. I was a big guy then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but I, I mean, I was probably like I was like 215, 220 at the time. But Travis. Travis at the time was like 165, maybe 170 pounds, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe 170 pounds. And he's tiny. So like I, we get him out of his clothes that are covered in vomit and put him in my clothes. And he just looks like this little kid wearing his dad's clothes. Like everything's so baggy on him. <laughs> and we go to this next, the next destination and like though for some reason like we don't know what's going on we have no clue what's happening because for some reason the women cannot keep their hands off of Travis <laughs> like he's wearing these baggy ass clothes like we're talking like Walmart like the $8 pair of Wranglers from Walmart in 1999 and he's wearing them dude and he's got like this belt that is like it's cranked down as far as the belt will go and it's still too loose and he's got this giant shirt on and for some reason like the the women just cannot get enough of him <laughs> and he just he has no clue what he's doing because he just did a 50 second keg stand and he's drunk out of his mind <laughs> and like all he can do is just have this gigantic smile on his face the entire time while like I never understood it why why the ladies loved him so much that day it's confidence it did. Hey, <laughs> it is true. Like, you know, if you got confidence, the ladies love you. Yeah, so those if first people that drank, they're just like, whoa, I like this. Hey, if, if you're not confident, then, uh, you know, the ladies will not like you. They want to know that you're going to be able, like, it, it goes back to an evolutionary standpoint, like, you know, male selection, mate selection in humans. Mm-hmm. Like, no female wants to select a male that they feel is not going to be able to provide. Like Mm -hmm. if you know, I know I can provide, I know I can go get a deer. I know I can go get a turkey and feed my woman and feed my offspring. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a, just a a one directional thing. Like I I think men are also more or less attracted to women who aren't as, I think that's just the the timid culture. It's just not something that's attractive. It's the same. It it goes both ways. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, women want a man who's going to be able to provide what they need and, Men want a woman to be able to provide what 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 she's going to provide. Like, okay, you look at the uh, historical god or prehistorical gender roles. Here we go. You ready? <laughs> we're going to get some emails about this one. Okay, so like men were mostly the hunters, right? Oh yeah. Okay, what did females do? I don't. I think that's still kind of a ter- uh, what is it local, depending on where you are. Yeah, depending on there's, you yeah, know, we're talking about. I'm talking some about like, populations yeah. where the women were the ones that went out and hunted. But like who? I don't know. I've I've heard of them though. Who like Amazon women? Those are a myth. Okay, <laughs> but they it, came from something. No, they. It was a myth. Someone was tripping on acid and was like, dude. What if there was this population of women that did all the hunting and there was no men, and the only men that they brought into their camp were the ones they had sex with just to have babies. And if they had a boy baby, they killed him. Well, I'm not saying even that to that extent, but I don't think it's like, I don't know. I could be wrong. I, I just, hey, I'm we, not a we need to look it up. We need to look it up. But I, I don't, I don't see, 
I don't see like a prehistoric culture really supporting the the gen, like this like separation of gender roles that we see today. I really don't. I really don't. Because the only reason that people are like, oh, women can do this, women can do this. Uh, you're a misogynist. You're a I mean, cis hetero matter of bastard. Like, what like they can or can't. But like, if you have you know like a like a teenage girl who at that point was going to be in her peak con, you know physical condition, and she goes if and she like, can kills do it, no, 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 no. And brings it back. Yeah, to if the she can do it, like, then, yeah, oh, if yeah. she can do it, by God, she can do it. They're not going to say, I don't, like, hey, I don't, don't yeah. bring these hogs to our community. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I'm not. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, that is not what I'm saying. Argument that I'm yeah. What I'm saying is like. The, the whole concept of like there's like, okay, so mostly men would have been hunters. Okay. If there's a female that can hunt, I'm pretty sure that there is no prehistoric man that's going to say, uh, no, you can't do that because you're a girl. They're yeah. going to be like, oh, you want to take down this this mammoth? You go right ahead. Mm-hmm. And if you can do it, dude, perfect. Let's do it. At the same time, where you had the other end of the spectrum where everyone's like, oh, the females were mostly like the gatherers, you know, gathering berries. Get- well, that's because I feel yeah. like that's something you can do when you're pregnant. It's yeah. not, a, you know. <laughs> you, you're such a misogynist. <laughs> but I'm sure there was also like males who were also content with, you know what? I think I want to gather some blueberries today. Mm-hmm. I don't think I want to go hunt a bear. Uh, you know, strawberries sound nice. Yeah. I think it's the same thing. Like I think prehistorically there there were no Fs given. Nobody cared. It was it was a straight and like pure meritocracy. Could you do your job? Yes. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Let's do it. Because the struggle then was not trying to get your political point across. The struggle then was not trying to make more money or just trying to survive. It was trying to live, mm-hmm. you know, and this bullshit where it, where these people, they, they just find something to complain about, find something to attack people about. It's because they have no struggle. Mm-hmm. There's no struggle in their life. You know, literally you look at these people who are protesting and it, it's because they don't have an actual struggle. You go to college campuses, you know why everybody protests on college campuses because they're college students, they actually don't have a struggle. Well, okay. Would you put the struggle in context, though? Like we we struggle with our own things. They're not a matter of like life and death. But, but that's they are no. That's what I mean. Like, like if you're struggling, like you're you're kind of mitigating what what today's struggles no, are. No, if you struggle, if you're struggling to feed your family, still. you don't have time for that bullshit. You don't have time to go protest. You know, whatever. You don't have time for that. That's you, why the college students do it for us. Because they don't have an actual struggle. Mm-hmm. Like if the, the what's your uh, you go to college and what's your struggle? Well, I have anxiety. Give me a break. Do people protest what, about having anxiety? What do you? Well, no, that's that's their struggle. Oh no, yeah, but that's not what they protest about. They protest about other people's struggles. That like what other people's struggles? I don't know. Like like what? Like um, I don't know. I think of an example off the top of my head, but I know I'm just going to eat it later. Oh, no. No. Like, it, the, my point, here's my point. Okay. Here's yeah. my, my point is being, if you, if there's an absence of struggle, you will find something to attack. Okay. Mm-hmm. An absence of struggle results in you finding something to attack to find that it's not like, it's something you don't like well, and see, you need to still, do something about it. I feel it. like that's still very absolutist. Like, it, you know, if you... How appro- is that absolutist? Well, because there's always something, there's always room for improvement. And what you're saying is that if, if they're, that if that, 
they're if they, if they don't struggle enough that they don't have any right to protest. But it's like they're, not, never they're said, protesting because they want to improve something. I never said they don't have the right to protest. Oh, but okay. I but feel you're, you're, yeah. some of the things that they're protesting are completely ridiculous. But it's like it's just a matter of wanting to improve something, you know, wanting to improve an aspect of society that they don't necessarily enjoy. And they band together with other people that don't also don't enjoy that aspect of society, whatever it may be. And that's how a lot of decisions are made. That's how a lot of things become greater. That's why we you know, that's how socialism came about. Oh, God, socialism. <laughs> that's one step left to communism. Yeah, but when you so, listen, man, I'm an American. Okay. All right. Have you have you ever? I'm a been, true blue felt American, like and I one one should not be a service that people should have available to them because that's a socialist service. What is that? Nine one one. Nine one one. Yeah, it's a social service. It's not a socialist service. What's the difference? It's a huge difference. No, that's not a difference. There it's are, something we've all no, decided that needs to be the case. Social like we need services. To have resources. Social that are dedicated services. To helping people in need versus socialist programs. Social services are things that the government is supposed to provide for you because you pay taxes, you do these things. Therefore, the government is obligated to provide you with these basic protections that help to protect your basic freedoms. Okay. For example, and how is that different from socialist services? The socialist services are. They're trying to broaden that. I don't know if I can answer this question. <laughs> I think you've stumped me. <laughs> Because well, like, if it's, you are but, socialist, you think that the government should be provide that we should all pay in for the government to provide us with a certain thing, which with everything nine one one is so, an example of. But that. with socialism, it's everybody is on the same page. Everybody is on the same social like class. There's there's no classes in socialism and communism. There's no there's no there's no high class. There's no middle class. There's no low class. Everybody's in the same class. So all the money that you make, you have a job. Well, that's a, that's to the extreme, though. Like you, you could There's still no, have it's socialist, either It's either like socialism socialist or medicine. communism like or it's not. That's kind of the hot button issue right now. Okay, so like, there's, okay, this socialized medicine. <laughs> I actually, should, should medicine be as available to you as calling 911? I'm sitting in my chair because <laughs> I'm going to address this right now, you bastard. You ready? <laughs> all right. We get, hey, it it we? doesn't matter. Listen, <laughs> sit down. Sit down. You're going to, you need to hear this, okay? <laughs> Listen. Socialized medicine, when you really, really think about it, think about all the bullshit taxes we pay. Think about all the health insurance we pay. Like, our health insurance, like, we pay it a stupid amount of health insurance, okay? Yeah. So that's, that's in the grand, Yeah, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. But... That's a capitalist medical system. It's a Here, ca- it's so it's still socialist to a certain degree because I, our money is damn being. It, can I finish? I'm just making just the argument to try to put it into context. God damn it! Uh, okay, right. let me finish. All right, and this is coming from a redneck ass blue is blue Republican. No red. Red redneck ass red <laughs> state sob. This here's what I'm telling you. Okay, okay. ready? Look. Get rid of it. Get rid of health insurance. Get rid of dental insurance. Get rid of all this crap, okay? Not immediately. It's going to have to happen over a course of about eight years, which would be like, mm, oh, gee, I don't know, the next Trump terms, the next two Trump terms. <laughs> Kidding. So anyhow. <laughs> but are so, you, though? <laughs> there's no way Trump would approve this. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, you just, doctors, they do, we need to do what other countries have adopted where doctors are government employees the government takes the cream of the crop and pays for their medical school education and they become medical uh, they become government employees you work for the government um 
and therefore everything is subsidized. The medical care is subsidized through the government. The reason that healthcare is so expensive in the United States is because we have allowed these private companies to drive up prices instead of government regulation and medicine. So if over the next eight years, we can say we have the first class in 2021, this is the first class that is going to be completely subsidized by the government. Okay. When you, the government's going to invest $250,000 in your education for you to be a medical doctor. When you get out, the government's going to <clears throat> invest in your internship, your residency. And when you finish your residency, you will be a government doctor. And we are going to pay you accordingly. I think a lot of people would go for that. Nope, I don't think so. But it, they go for it in the UK? Actually, it's already started in some ways. New York State has now... Um, Johns Hopkins University Medical School tuition is completely free and subsidized by the state. Thank you. You don't have to necessarily go back and work for the state of New York, but medical school tuition and all, actually all medical professions, so dental, veterinary, medical school, the tuition is getting so out of control that you're actually losing the cream of the crop. It's not going into those professions because they can't afford their student debt on the outside. Okay. I mean, think about that. Like in the UK, so the UK... And there is federally subsidized veterinary and medical care through the armed services. This is Dr. Bridget. She's our resident veterinarian. Thank you for so. joining us, by yeah, the way. Thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah. apparently I was voluntold. So. Can, you, can, you, can, you move yeah. your, can you move your mouth a little bit closer to the mic? Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. So like in the UK, that's what they do. And like everybody's like, well, you're never going to get rich being a doctor. But these guys get out of medical school. They finish their residency and the government is paying them like, you know, the equivalent of like eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000 a year. That's a pretty damn comfortable living. You know, and mm-hmm. that I think what that does is that takes the people who are only getting into medicine for the money, it gets in the hell out of there. And then you actually will start having people who really care about medicine. You pay them a, a, a commensurate salary for what they do. I feel like a $90,000 salary when you get out of medical school is pretty, honey, if you made $90,000 right now, would you be happy? That's entry level small animal medicine. $90,000 a year is entry-level small animal medicine. But would you be okay with that right now? I mean, I'd be okay with it because that's not standard for my industry. But in other industries, that's that would be considered a low salary. You know what? $90,000, I'd be okay with it. How about you, Paul? I mean, compared to the government job that I have now. Yeah. Yeah. We also live in Texas, We also live in Texas. A $90,000 a year in North Texas is going to be a very comfortable salary. $90,000 a year in San Francisco, you're nope. not doing well, that. Well, I mean, right. I'm pretty sure, like, I'm pretty be, sure, I'm pretty you know, sure Bernie would be smart enough to be like, okay, look, if you're in, like, a metropolitan area, we'll pay you a little bit more. Because mm-hmm. it's a living wage. Is like, yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, things that's to what, consider there. That's what he's, that's what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, yeah. No, I, I, see, I don't. That's you, so you're talking about completely socialized medicine. I, I, I am because I thought you were I about am. to make the complete opposite no, argument. I'm not, <laughs> but there's there's I could also at this exact same time argue a completely capitalistic medical system, where you actually do completely do away with insurances, mm-hmm. and you pay cash. Okay. There are medical professionals who are going to that system. There are medical doctors who have actually left formal medicine and have started opening up cash only clinics. And they're proving that it's a valid model. 
Mm-hmm. So what yeah. is like what are the, the what does the prices look in that in that instance? It's though? it's a lot it's lower. It's actually a lot cheaper. Yeah, because I'd imagine. The, yeah. But yeah. yeah, the vast majority of what human healthcare charges come from go to paying the huge amount of staff and time that is required to manage the insurance system. Mm, so yeah, I could see that. I feel like that's the, that's just a huge inefficiency. The, it is. It is. Yeah. And it's, it's gigantic. We yeah. have huge inefficiency. I feel like in the education system as well, which, oh, it's no like way. A, which is an argument as to why maybe it shouldn't be socialized is because if the government is, is, is doing everything, they're going to put things in place and spend money where it doesn't need to be spent in efforts to solve an unsolvable problem and, that's kind of I don't, that, that, that. I guess that would be my argument against it. Not to say that I am completely against it. Like I'm, I do think, like it needs to change. There needs to be some social aspect of it. I'm completely for it. So my redneck, red state, God bless Donald J. Trump. I'm all about socialized education. I think we should follow the German model. So the German model is um, basically they they begin testing these kids. Uh, you know, right around the fourth or fifth grade. And it's not like the standardized tests that we have. I mean, it's just like basic cognitive tests. Like, can you process this? Can you process that? And and like and each step along the way, it, it gets progressively harder. And then when they're about eighth, ninth grade, uh, they take a test and they have to choose, choose a route. It's either they either choose a vocational route or they choose an academic route. And I think we need to move more towards that model because we have a lot of kids. They are not interested in going to a four-year university. Mm -hmm. They're interested in going and working and making money. And we need to provide an avenue for them to take that route. Yes. And because I know there's, there's actually, there's three schools. I've talked to somebody recently about this who like that, that lived in Germany for a while until they, before they moved here. And they said it, it is those three schools. Like there is, you know, vocational, um, where you go into like a very specific thing and they do this at a very young age, like coming out of elementary school. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're either going into a vocational thing where you're like going to be a welder or, you know, uh, I guess a doctor and veterinarian would, would fall into that too. Or you could be, you no, know, we tend to be classified in academia, academia. Yeah. Okay. Well then there's that class too. And then there's the other classes where it's like, you know, you're, you're going to work at McDonald's or something, flipping yeah. burgers. Yeah. I mean, it's, but, and it's like, you can still switch between those, absolutely. Thing, but it's really hard from what I understand. And but that can be the frustration. It doesn't it. have to be difficult. Like it's very simple. So like in eighth grade, you, these kids, they either choose a vocational academic route. Boom. They split at 10th grade. You have the option at 10th grade to if you want to go back to an academic route from a vocational route, I feel like you should be able to do that mm-hmm. because you don't know shit when you're 14 years old. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden when you're 16, 17 years old, maybe you're like, ah, oh, you know what? I don't know if like being a, uh, a, a carpenter is for me. I don't know if being a welder is for me. And I'm actually really interested in this I'm interested in physics and I want to study that you should have the ability to go back at like 10th grade and go back and do that. Mm -hmm. And then again, in 11th grade, you should have the ability to go to switch routes again. I think, and then at the end of the day, at the end of the day, all you get, you get a, a high school diploma period. Like we're putting too much emphasis on this crap about like, Oh, we have these, these endorsements on high school diplomas. Nobody gives a shit about high school diploma endorsements. Mm-hmm. No one's looking at your resume and saying you have a high school diploma endorsement in, in, uh, it doesn't matter. Like uh, in mathematics, what does that mean to me? That doesn't mean anything that you all to me. You just have a high school diploma. 
So like, I feel like at the end of the day, if you take the vocational route, you should be able to graduate with some kind of vocational certification, some kind of training where you can go get a full-time job and make a above a living wage. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's still a high school diploma. And if you take the academic route, you have a high school diploma and you took that route. So you are going to go to college period. Mm-hmm. But if you, I mean, that's why, but the safe net is at the 11th grade crossover. That's why I say at 11th grade, they should be able to cross over again. Let's say at 11, they're 17 years old, they're juniors like, you know, I don't know if this academic thing's for me. I need to go back over here and go vocational route. Mm-hmm. I feel like they need to be able to do that. Yeah. I, I do think they should always have that opportunity. No, nobody knows what the hell they want to do when they're seven, uh, you know, 17, 16 years old. They really don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, and they're the push now is we're trying to get kids to decide a career path in eighth grade. That's preposterous. Mm-hmm. Aren't you just suggesting that that they decide a career path, vocational versus academic? Well, we're trying to do that. Like, that that's a, I feel like that's those are like they want them not to a specific one. They want right? them to decide on a specific career path in eighth grade with no crossover. Like they they there's like. You either go vocational or you go this way, and then that's it. This, once the split happens in eighth grade, that's it. I'm advocating for like multiple crossover points where you can go back and forth between the two if you so desire. But I mean, you still have to like prove yourself and like you know pass the tests that are required to absolutely that show that you yeah. understand enough to yeah. go into that field. And, and I that, think that's all, what they have though. Yeah. I, that's like you, I feel like you can still do that at any time. You just have to be able to show that you are. Um, that you that you have the competencies required to to you know to to excel in that field. Yeah, and I think all college should be government subsidized. I think all college should be free. Mm-hmm. You pass a test, you are the of of the intellectual elite. I don't care about like economic elite. Mm-hmm. Talking about you are the intellectual elite. I feel like the government should pay for your college. Okay, you're smart. You've shown through these test scores, through your uh, academic, you know, effort, that you are worth the investment. I feel like the government should invest in you, pay for your medical school, then you become a government employee. Bam, there you go. So I feel like a lot of people don't want to become government employees, though. Hey, guess what? In the end, we're all government employees. Mm-hmm. We all work for the government in one way or the other. For what do you taxes. think, Bridget? About which statement? All the above. <laughs> Wow, that's a lot to digest. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. What to do you What do you there. think about my my little my education plan? We split them off at eighth grade in a vocational or academic route, and then you offer them like crossovers at certain points where you can go back and forth if you change your mind. I still think eighth grade's a little early. Okay. I what about say, What about tenth grade? Yeah, do a tenth grade, grade and then like with a give, offer a crossover eleventh grade. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, I think we. Uh, Getting a little off task, but let's go ahead and bring that it back. Never to, happens. Um, <laughs> never happens. That never happens. Uh, it's almost like we should. We, you know, we should just call ourselves something off task. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, this has been a great episode for getting off task in that regard. Hopefully, you learned a little bit about carbonation and making beer or making kombucha. We didn't really talk much about wine. Oh wait, kombucha. Yeah, I missed t- that part. We that talked about must kombucha. have been interesting. It's a lot. It's a very similar process to the whole thing of making beer. Mm-hmm. Bridget has something. She had a correction that she wanted to give us. I forgot. 
She had a, a correction to our marsupial episode. Oh, what did we mess up yeah, on marsupials? Yeah, so, okay, so there, um, I talked about possums and how possums are harmless, and she said, she she definitely, like, got mad at me and then yelled at me. Okay, none of that was true. I just mildly suggested that you forgot an entire community of people who do not think that possums are truly harmless, and that's the equine community because they carry a potentially deadly disease known as equine protozoal myeloencephalitis. Hold on, say that again. Say that again. Equine protozoal myeloencephalitis, EPM. Okay, so that's a mouthful. (laughs) <laughs> right so american opossums carry epm mm-hmm. so how does epm actually get into the horse ingestion so opossum feces and opossum urine sheds the protozoa and the horse ingests it most of the time it's through feed contamination but any animal that's out grazing in a pasture that a possum has happened to walk by can also ingest it through pasture well you know what that horse can eat shit exactly <laughs> There was another one. <laughs> and that's the problem. <laughs> there was another one. So I also made the statement that um, there are no male marsupials that have pouches. That's that? right. And there is a male there, marsupial there is that one. has a there, pouch. And Which one? It's it's actually called a water possum. A wa- I'm sorry, a water opo- opossum. Oh, is it here? Um, it's yes, it's in South America. It's a water opossum, but here's here's the funny what thing. The water here's a, well, here's the funny part about it. So it only has a pouch. So the pouches <laughs> when they when the males fight, they put their genitals inside the pouch and then they fight. <laughs> so like it's, it's it's basically to protect their genitals when they fight. So it'd be like if I was about to get in a fight and I just like tuck my junk back and you just tuck it into your <laughs> into your jean pocket. Yeah. 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 It's essentially a jock strap for an opossum. Yeah. <laughs> and they evolved to have that. Hey dude, look, look. If if we're getting in fights and I can protect my junk. I feel like that's a really good idea. Mm-hmm. It's good use for your marsupium. Yes, it is a marsupium. Male marsupium. <laughs> I I am going to exit this conversation at this point. It's well, all right. We're about to wrap it up. Fantastic. We're about to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I'm I'm going to. Yeah. I'm so glad we we made this uh, clarification. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, thank you're welcome. <laughs> thank you, Doctor Bridget, for clearing up the American opossum. EPM uh, deal. You're more than welcome. So like, do oh, the other one was like, are, are do are possums like resistant to rabies? They're not resistant to rabies. They are not very effective carriers. It's very rare for an opossum to have rabies. They can do it as all mammals can. Just mm-hmm. for some reason, they are not the most common carrier. For example, in Texas, the most common carrier is a skunk. And mm. you have to keep in mind that when you're talking about rabies, there's two different factions of rabies. There's the terrestrial rabies and then the non-terrestrial rabies. The so alien rabies? Aliens. Oh. Bats. <laughs> pretty much the bat rabies. Oh, so okay. your state oh. is qualified based on whether or not your rabies sits in non-terrestrial, like bats versus terrestrial, mm, which is okay. coons and skunks. So that's why you got to fear bats. That's why some people have a fear. Oh, we never talked about that. Okay, while we didn't talk, we don't. Okay, that's right. Never mind. Yeah, we'll talk about bats another time. Yeah, we're talking about bats. Should be a whole separate podcast. Yeah, Yeah, we can go bat shit crazy. I I love bats. Mm -hmm. Like they're they're so cute. I love bats. (laughs) But 
Thank you, Dr. Bridget. You're for, welcome. For Exiting. Us Exiting right. teachers off task because yep. I am not a teacher. Oh, well, your mother's a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Your my mother is a teacher. teacher. And my sister. They're great people. I love them both. Um, so we're going to go ahead and continue our inner podcast beer chugging contest uh, one more time. And uh, so oh, we're we, doing it again. We're going to do it one more time. So by this time, Brandon from Drinks of Brandon has posted his time and it may or may not have beat mine, but I haven't listened yet. So I'm going to go ahead and see if I can beat my previous time. My previous time was five seconds and nine one hundredths of chugging one pint, 12 ounces of lukewarm Keystone Light. Let's do it. Let's do this. So remember the remember the parameters. I'm going to tap the beer on the bar, chug, and the clock doesn't stop until the second tap when I put it back on the bar. All right, here we go. Ready? Uh, deux, trois. That was 531. 5.31. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm losing my stuff. We got a quarter of a, uh, about a quarter of a thing of a, of a second. Five Nine. seconds. Five seconds, 30, and 31, 100s. All right. Well, you know, I've done worse. I've done better. So, yeah. Brandon, let us know. Uh, <clears throat> let us know what your chug time is. Make sure you have somebody else time it for you. Uh, Cause I don't trust your ass. Um, I don't know a whole lot of people from Eastern Kentucky. Thanks for shouting out to yeah. us. By the way, I found that I found that out today. Also. Yeah, definitely, man. That was Very that humbling. was that was awesome. And a uh, little do a, a lot of people know that Texas and Kentucky have a lot of like. There's a lot of relationship between Kentucky and Texas. Really? Yeah. So Davy Crockett, where'd he come from? I, I, I Kentucky, bro. Okay, I was gonna so guess. there was like a lot of like Kentuckians that actually came down to Texas during the Texas Revolution when we fought and beat Mexico. Uh, a lot of the volunteers were from were from Kentucky. Oh, interesting. So it's uh, you know, hey, it's basically like he's he's a Kentucky, he's a Texan by default, <laughs> almost, almost, you know, mm-hmm. by by proxy. There you go. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, oh, whatever. Right. Yeah. All right. By extension. Well, Paul's got a date to go on, so we're going to cut this podcast and we're going to end it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We have, to this point, Paul, over 700 followers on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And we have almost 500 listens, which is like uh, half a thousand. That was... This is a lot more than I ever thought that we get to, like, especially like this is episode 10. Mm-hmm. And uh, I definitely never thought we'd get here. So yeah. I definitely want to. This is episode 10. This is episode oh, wow. 10. Never, never thought we'd get to episode 10. <laughs> oh, man. That's never good. thought we'd get that's, to episode 10. Good. And definitely never thought that we'd actually have people listening other than my mother and my sister. So, yeah. So, all you listeners out there, we appreciate the hell out of you. Thank you very much. Uh, once again, this uh, episode is brought to you by thelongwayadventures.com. Uh, stop by, give Terry a uh, give Terry a, a shout if you ever wanted to do a uh, motorcycle adventure destination. We also have, don't forget about our merchandise store, okay? Yeah, Cafepress.com. I got my own little TOT logo that I designed that apparently is uh, No, there's nothing wrong with the TOT logo. Mm-hmm. It, you know, so there's two logos. We have two logos. We're like battling logos. The TOT logo, which is 
Somebody's knocking at the door. I don't know why. So I've been told that the TOT logo also doesn't look that great because it kind of looks like it says tit. I, th- I thought it was awesome because it has the three ties. See, I know now that so I'm looking TOT, at it, I see it. I yeah. see it now. It kind of looks like tit right on the tits. But is bad. the to there's nothing wrong with the TOT logo. Mm-hmm. So the only issue is is that like our audience is mostly female and like TOT is going to be associated with a child. See, that's, that's what we thought before until somebody pointed out that it kind of looks like tit. Okay. And then so um I came up with a secondary logo which that looks is a little more phallic. which is the the headphone and No, actually the, that one looks really good. And you got your headphones, the little... So there's the headphone logo with the headphone with the pod, Teachers Off Task podcast. Some waves. Yeah, but they're both uh, still available on on CafePress.com. So our store is CafePress.com forward slash Teachers Off Task. Yeah, thanks for setting that up. Hey, man, no problem. No mm-hmm. problem. You know, for every sale that we get, for every sale that we have, we get, I think it's like a... It's not very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like two or three dollars per per t shirt. But that's only just directly. If you wear the shirt, you're marketing for yeah. us. Hopefully we can yeah. earn if some you revenue buy, off that too. Yeah, if you buy it, you know send us a pick. Put on the shirt, send us a pick. Uh we had a listener, Sheena from Canada. Oh yeah. Actually sent us a pick of her in our shirt. Um, and she gave it a great review. She said it's really soft material. She really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I, I never thought that we would have a listener from Canada buy a t-shirt. Yeah, I wasn't, I was, I was surprised. I was too. Yeah. We are international. Woo. That's right. That's <laughs> right. All right. Well, Paul, it's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm. I think it's about time we call it a day. All right. Guys. Thank you for listening. This has been Teachers Off Task. This is Dr. Bob. This is Paul Farrar. Cue the music. Hey guys, this is Paul Farrar. Uh, it is currently 1.26 in the morning and I'm only telling you this because I'm about to push this episode out and I'm staying up so that I can be consistent in getting them out every Monday. Anyways, I appreciate you guys listening. I tell you guys about all the people that sponsor us. Although, we just kind of covered that, so I don't want to be redundant. Instead, I'm going to sell you on these beats. Check it out. I enjoy making this stuff. You guys are amazing. I'm about to go to sleep. Here's a little bit more of this music. Hope everyone out there has a great Monday. It's going to be a long day for me, but I'm looking forward to it. All out.